What a joy to sing together, and especially to sing uh, outside. If you have a Bible, please open to Psalm 19, the 19th Psalm. As we're turning there, uh, just a, a kind of a note for the next couple months. If you are a member, you know that earlier this calendar year, our church uh, instituted a sabbatical policy. And then at our last members meeting, we communicated that our family will be on sabbatical. Really, I'll be on sabbatical for the next two months, so September and October. And the first thing I really want to say about that is, is thank you. Thank you. Uh, we've been here uh, eight years now, and so uh, according to policy, we qualify for, for sabbatical. And I'm just grateful for a church that recognizes the value of something like this and supports uh, your pastors, supports us in doing this. So so thank you. I'm not at a place, uh, I've told some of you this, I'm not at a place where I feel like I absolutely need it, and yet I want to steward it so that by God's grace, I don't get to that place where I, where I feel like I need it. And so I've said uh, in times past to some of you, I've said I'm viewing this as kind of like an oil change. If you do it regularly and do it well, then you don't need to change out the engine. Uh, and so hopefully we'll steward this opportunity and be set up, Lord willing, for fruitful and faithful long-term uh, pastoral ministry. That's, that's our goal and our desire. If you're wondering uh, what, what that'll look like for us, we don't have plans to, to travel far for very long. Our kids are in school, so they'll continue that. We have some, week, some long weekends away that we have planned. But we intend to uh, invest in, in our family and to take, take some personal rest and some personal growth. I'll continue to serve our fellowship of churches. So as some of you know, uh, with the Bridge Fellowship, our state fellowship, I serve as director of pastoral fellowships. And so I'll continue in that role. And so some of the Sundays we'll be attending different churches uh, that are part of our, our state fellowship of churches. You won't see us on Sundays. Uh, we'll miss you all. We'll certainly miss you all. Uh, you may see us different times around town or for some of us at, at school. And if you see us, when you see us, don't ignore us. <laughs> um, you don't have to like take the other aisle at Meyer if you see us in the aisle. Uh, so we would just say don't avoid us, but at the same time, maybe just don't expect a lot of us. Uh, but we'll, we'll love to greet you and, and see you. Our kids, Lord willing, our kids will still be involved on Wednesday nights with Awana and youth group. And uh, we'll return, Lord willing, uh, the last Sunday of October to attend and then return to responsibilities uh, heading into November. Well, enough about me. Uh, let's look at Psalm 19 together. You, you have it open. I'm going to lead us in prayer now, and then we'll consider this amazing portion of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do want to join with all creation in witness to your faithfulness. You've been so faithful to to provide for us what we need, and especially to provide for our souls what we need in Jesus. And so we pray now that you would use your word to transform us, not only to change our knowledge, but to change our lives, to change our loves. May we love you more because of what we see in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen. How many of you know Clive? You know Clive? How many of you know C.S. Lewis? 
His first name is Clive, Clive Staples Lewis. Now you know why he went by C.S. C.S. Lewis calls Psalm 19 the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now that's just one man's opinion. But the message of Psalm 19 is powerful. And if you're a person who takes notes, maybe in your Bible or maybe in a, in a separate sheet of paper, I'm going to give you what I believe is the message of Psalm 19, summarized with, with three simple points. These will be our three points for this morning. Now you say, of course there are three, right? Isn't that how all sermons go? Well, this is, that's how this psalm is laid out. So we're going to take uh, God's division of these three stanzas as our three points. So first, we'll see from verses 1 through 6 that God's creation speaks. Secondly, from the second stanza of this psalm, we'll see that God's word transforms. And then finally, God's people respond. God's creation speaks, verses 1 through 6. As Pastor Ross led us in reading it earlier, you see that there is a message that's being broadcast through God's creation. The heavens declare, the skies proclaim. As we kept reading, you saw that there is speech and there are words. So God's creation is speaking. Now, as we go through these first six verses, we're going to use uh, five of the journalistic questions that these, these verses are going to answer for us. So I think the first question we'd ask is, is well, it's, it speaks what? What is God's creation saying? And the answer, of course, is in verse 1. It declares his glory. It declares the work of his hands. So it tells us something about who God is. It tells us something about what God has done. Think back to maybe what you would say is the most amazing public speaker you've ever heard. Somebody who is dynamic, engaging, maybe humorous. You might remember mannerisms. You might remember the, the power of their voice and the effectiveness of, of their delivery. Do you remember the message? Do you actually remember what that person said? If you're like me, you can be amazed at God's creation. Maybe you're a morning person and you love watching the sunrise. Maybe you're not a morning person and you love watching the sunset. I love that we live in Michigan, and in Michigan, you can, within one day, watch the sun rise over Lake Huron and then drive over to the western side of the state and watch the sun set over Lake Michigan. It's a really an amazing thing. And as you see sunrises and sunsets, or you just take a walk in the woods, or you're here right now and you're looking around at the beauty of God's creation, let us be amazed at creation, but don't miss the message. Don't miss what creation is, is speaking, is saying, is, is telling us. What are they telling us? They're telling that God is glorious, that he is majestic in power, that he is infinite in wisdom, that he is always good. It's telling us that, that he has worked for, for his creation, the works of his hands. What has he done? Well, he's made this world. He's made us and put us in a world that is perfectly suited for, for life, for people. 
even if you don't know a thing about Jesus, you don't know the gospel, you can know something of God through what he has made. God's creation speaks. And what is it talking about? What is it saying? It's telling us about God. I'm going to put a little plug in here for Christians who will study God's creation. We need more scientists who are Christians. Notice I didn't say we, did, we need more Christian scientists, okay? That's a, that's a little different thing, if you understand that. But we need people who will look at what God has made and will take in the message of God's glory and goodness and then seek to, to serve and bless people with that. So if you're a student starting a school year now, maybe, maybe you're in second grade and you're going to study this year about bugs and leaves or Maybe you're a senior in high school or you're in college and you've got maybe advanced biology or you've got chemistry. Lean into it. Lean into the study of God's creation. Listen. Listen to his message. His creation is speaking, so don't miss it. The next journalistic question we might ask about God's creation speaking is is when? And verse 2 gives us the answer. When does God's creation speak? Day after day, night after night. doesn't stop. Verse 2 says that day to day pours out speech. This word that we have translated pours out is actually a word that's usually used for, for a spring of fresh water. So if you leave uh, the campground here later this afternoon and you drive north about six miles, right on M24 on the west side of the road, there's a little roadside park and there's a spring there. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of you have passed it. Maybe some of you have stopped there. And what does that spring do? It pours out water. It just gushes out water. When does it stop? It doesn't. It doesn't. Okay? What if you were to somehow, like, force a cap onto that spring? The water would still come out somewhere. That's the idea here of God's creation. It's just speaking continually. Do you realize that you're in the middle of something like the longest sermon ever? I'm not talking about mine. I'm talking about God's creation. Day after day, night after night, it pours out speech. It continues, unceasing declaration of God's glory. Next question. Okay, so God speaks, God's creation speaks. How? In verse 3, King David is inspired to write just a a real clarification here for those of us who might be tempted to take uh, poetic imagery too literally. So verses 1 and 2, and later on in the psalm, there's a lot of personification going on, which is a common common tool used by poets and songwriters. Verse 3 adds just just a real literal clarity to this, okay? So what does verse 3 say? Well, there's no actual speech. There, there's no, there aren't literal words being spoken by God's creation. Okay, their, their voice is not actually heard. So God's creation is speaking, communicating, uh, but we just need to recognize it's not something that our, our ears will, will hear. There are no sound waves hitting our ears telling us about God's glory in creation. So how does it speak? It speaks through, through the images. A picture is sometimes worth a thousand words. And you look at God's creation and it is speaking. Verse 4, where does it speak? 
Where does God's creation speak? Well, it speaks everywhere. God's message, the voice, goes out through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. The world here literally means like dry land that can be inhabited by people. Which tells us something about the message. The message isn't for inanimate objects. The message is for people. It's for, it's for you. It's for me. It's to be received and understood by, by humans. The message of God's glory and God's handiwork, the works of his hands, is, is for us. It's for us. And then the last question this first stanza answers is, is why? Why would God's creation speak of his glory and of his handiwork? Here, the songwriter, David, focuses in on a specific part of God's creation, and that is the sun. Maybe as, as you've been looking through Psalm 19, you've been thinking about Genesis 1. The Holy Spirit, I believe, intended for us to do that. There have been references to the heavens, the skies that we've read in verse 1 is actually the same word from Genesis 1, the expanse or the firmament. Psalm 19 speaks of day and night, Genesis 1, and here, end of verse 4, we read that God set a tent for the sun. What does Genesis 1 say? That God set the greater light in the heavens to rule over the day. So focusing here on, on the sun, this, this psalm really relativizes the importance of the sun. There are some people in the world who, who minimize the importance of the sun. They say that it randomly developed through evolution that took place over billions of years, so it's not very important. It's just kind of happenstance that it's there. Happenstance that we're here. There's no purpose, no order to, to the sun being where it is and to, to us being where we are, and they, they really minimize the significance of the sun. Others have, have worshipped the sun. They have maximized the significance of the sun to, a, to an idolatrous degree, whether it be ancient civilizations or or even modern-day astrologers. Here, this psalm puts in the proper, proper perspective, doesn't it? Because who created the sun, end of verse 4? God did. God is the one who controls the sun. And the psalmist uses this personification, this imagery of him pitching a tent, setting a tent for the sun. And that sun, verse 5, comes out every day like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man running its course with joy. Here we have this image of, of the sun coming out with anticipation, celebration, eagerness to, to embrace the day before it. It's running with enduring strength. It doesn't stop. It's confident. It's victorious. Have you ever watched a race where everyone knew who was going to win before the gun went off? Some of you know I got to coach middle school track and field here in Lapeer for a few years, and the last couple years we had a, a runner, a young lady, some of you would know her, named Morgan, and she ran the 400 for us. And it was never a question of who would win. It was only a question of what time and by how much. And when the gun went off, it really was kind of unfair. She would just take off. The 400 is one lap of the track. And it was amazing to watch this runner running with confidence, even victorious, 
though they haven't yet hit the finish line, just, just running out in front and running the course with this joyful, victorious confidence. That's the idea here of, of the sun. We have an expression in our English language, right? As sure as the sun will rise tomorrow morning, it's going to happen. Now, why? Why would God draw our attention to his creation, especially here with, to, to the sun? Verse 6, I think, gives us the answer. So the sun is all-encompassing. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. The sun's light and heat hits everyone. Hits everyone. Nothing, the Bible says, is hidden from the sun. There's no excuse. There's no excuse for any human to miss the message of God's creation. Every person who has ever lived has experienced God's common grace through the heat and the light of the sun. There's no life without the sun. There's no food without the sun. Every person who's ever lived has experienced God's common grace through his creation. So now, that means every person is responsible. Every person is responsible to do something with that message. You're responsible. I'm responsible. This is why the Apostle Paul uses Psalm 19 in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, Paul writes that ever since God's creation, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived in the things that God has made so that they are without excuse. My friend, you are without excuse. You have received God's common grace through his creation, through the sun specifically, the S-U-N. And of course, he would want you to receive his, his saving grace through the gift of his son, S-O-N, Jesus Christ, but you've received God's common grace. You, you've perceived something of, of who God is and something of what he has done, so you are without excuse. Later on in the book of Romans, Paul quotes Psalm 19 to emphasize that all have heard something of God. Indeed, Paul writes, they have heard because God's voice has gone out to all the earth and the words to the end of the world. So you're responsible. You are responsible. But knowledge is not the same as commitment, is it? Hearing the message is not the same as believing. There's a vital step between between understanding and obedience. And that step is the difference between life and death. Knowing that there is a God and, and hearing what his creation says about him is not enough to save you. General revelation is enough to condemn us. It's enough to tell us that there is a God who is more powerful than we are, who is wiser than we are. But general revelation, that is God's creation, can only condemn us. It cannot save us. To save us, we need to hear the good news of Jesus that's revealed in this Bible. And that Bible, what we would call God's special revelation, is, is where this psalm turns to next. So if you're taking notes, the second part of, of the psalm here, 
focuses on God's word. God's word transforms. First, God's creation speaks. Secondly, God's word, it transforms. Some of you are more, uh, I'd say, artistic, creative, even poetic. And you appreciate the, the first stanza here, verses 1 through 6. There's a lot of imagery, a lot of personification. Others are maybe more literal. They like numbers. They like symmetry. They like order. Well, you're going to love these next few verses. It's a poem still. It's a song. And yet it's very symmetric. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So we have a description of God's word. We have an adjective, a, a way that it's defined. And then we have an effect. And that repeats, verses 7, 8, and 9. It repeats over and over and over again. So, so look at these references to, to God's word. Verse 7, the law. Second half of verse 7, the testimony. Verse 8, the precepts. Later on in verse 8, the commandment. Middle of verse 9, the rules. Now, in case you're wondering, why, why does the order seem to, to break there at the beginning of verse 9? The fear of the Lord. Well, most, most commentators, most scholars would agree that this is speaking of the effects of God's law. So it's closely tied to, to God's law. But, but regardless, you have all these different words used for God's word. And then look at the way that God's word is described. So the law of the Lord, verse 7, is what? It's, it's perfect. It's complete. Next in verse 7, his testimony is sure. It is reliable. It is steadfast. It is trustworthy. It is sure. When all around changes and shifts and sinks, God's word remains. Verse 8, his word is described as right. That is, it's fair, it's straightforward. His word is pure, verse 8. It's unblemished, it's radiant. Verse 9, God's word, his rules are true. They are right. They are righteous. Now, lest this just be like some facts, a list of facts about God's word, notice the effects of God's word. And here is where God's word goes from simply being words on a page or pixels on a screen to actually transforming lives. We're going to read this responsively, verses, verses 7 and 8. So I'm going to read the first line of verse 7, then we're all going to read the second line. I'll give you a hint. It starts with the word reviving, okay? Then we'll keep going, and we'll do this for verses 7 and 8. And notice the effects of God's word. Here we go, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Here's the point. Everything in God's word, everything, and that means for us today, everything in the Bible that you hold Everything in the Bible that's all around your homes, everything in the Bible that's so readily accessible online, you are literally seconds away from taking in God's word at every moment of your life. 
And everything in God's word is reliable and right. And God's word transforms. Of those four things that we read responsibly just a moment ago, which one do you need this week? Do you need your your soul to be refreshed? Do you need wisdom? Do you need your heart to find true joy? Do you need understanding for life, your eyes to be be enlightened? Which one do you need? You might say, "I I need them all. Well, then what will you do this week to take in God's word so that it will transform you? You have it. You have it. I'm confident that 99% of us have it in our laps. We own a copy, at least one. And if you don't, then come see us afterward. We have extra copies. I would love to give you a copy of God's Word. But even if you're maybe too shy to come up and ask for a copy, if you have access to the Internet, you can find God's Word really, really easily, really, really quickly. And let's just be honest. We're, We're super grateful. Praise God for people who have given their lives to give us reliable translations so those of us who who speak English, understand English, can have God's word so readily accessible to us. People like William Tyndale gave their lives so that you could have God's word. And may we as a church support people like Joel Wagner and others who are giving their lives to give people access to God's word who right now have no access. We are so blessed, aren't we? We're so blessed. And this word can make us wise. This word can give us joy. This word can can open our eyes. It can refresh our souls. But if you don't take it in, it will do none of those. If you don't take it in, you're, you're held responsible for refusing to take the thing that will change your life. Imagine that that you go to a doctor and and he brings you the sad news that you have have a terminal disease. But then he gives you the good news that there's there's medicine available and, and he gives you the medicine and you take it home and it sits on your shelf. You may even carry it around in your in your backpack or your purse, but you never take it. You never take it in. Will it change you? No. We have God's word. We carry it around with us. But if we never take it in, will it change us? No. God's word transforms. But it transforms only those who take it in. The Pew Research Center says that as of today, less than 50% of professing Christians read the Bible at least once a week. Now, be honest. Is that you? If so, what will you do today to start a new habit? You may not be a strong reader. Praise God, we have recordings of the Bible being read to us, and they're free. You may not have a lot of time to sit in a quiet place to to read. Praise God. We have other resources, again, like audio Bibles, that can tell you, they can can read God's word for you. God's word transforms, but it only transforms those who take it in. If 
finally, we get to the, the end of this poem, the end of this song, the, the last stanza, if you will, from verses 10 down through verse 14. The message here is that God's people respond. God's people respond. Having heard of God's glory and creation, having been transformed by God's word, the psalmist David here models the right response in verses 10 through 14. First, God's people treasure and enjoy the Bible. Verse 10 tells us that, that God's people treasure the Bible. What will people do for, for a lot of money? I mean, for, let's be honest, for the, for the right amount of money, people will do, I mean, almost anything, won't they? But God's word is more valuable than, than an abundance of pure gold. The highest quantity of the highest quality gold is not as valuable as God's word that will transform your soul that will give you life everlasting. So treasure God's word and enjoy it. The image here is, a, is of honey. Now, I love honey. In our family, we, we consume a good bit of honey. We will sometimes just pour it into a spoon and, and eat it like that. We'll put it on toast and on, sometimes in tea and in all kinds of, of ways. If you've never had a peanut butter and honey sandwich, you, you really need to, unless you're allergic to peanuts, but... Uh, you, you really need to. They're so good. I love honeycomb. I love sometimes going to the farmer's market or, or some other source. And some of you know we have a few sources in our church here. But I love honeycomb. Now, you may not like honey. You may not like honeycomb. So this maybe doesn't hit you in the same way. But, but you do like sweets. You like desserts. I know you do. I've seen our church eat desserts. <laughs> and the picture here is of, is of a person who, who desires and enjoys God's word even more than we delight in sugar. We delight and we enjoy in God's word. My friend, would you taste and see that God is good? God's people respond by, by following God's instructions. Look at verse 11. God's servant is warned by God's word. And in keeping God's word, his servant receives a great reward. God's word is both the carrot on the stick in front of us that incentivizes us positively, and God's word is the, the prod in the back that incentivizes us, you might say, negatively. It, it warns us and it rewards us. As a coach, we try to motivate our athletes in different ways, and some are motivated with, with the warning, right? You show up late to practice, you won't play. Some are motivated by the reward, right? You work hard in practice, you'll get this, this team reward. You'll get playing time. God's word warns us, and it, it rewards us. So God's people respond. God's people Treasure and enjoy the Bible, verse 10. God's people follow God's instructions, verse 11. Verse 12 tells us that God's people confess sin. God's people confess sin. In verse 12, David acknowledges that he is guilty of unintentional sins. There are sins in his life of which he's, he's actually unaware. 
So who can really understand the sinfulness of the human heart? Who can discern his own errors, the ways in which sin has permeated thoughts and attitudes and actions? Who can really discern, understand all the ways that we fall short of God's holy standard? So let's follow the example of David here and plead for God's mercy. David prays, declare me innocent from, from unknown, hidden faults, sins of which I'm, I'm, I'm just unaware. They were maybe in, unintentional. Father, declare me innocent of these sins. The truth is we're not innocent, are we? So is David asking God to lie? By, by David saying, God, declare me innocent, when, when David is not innocent, and neither are we, we're guilty, is David asking God to lie? No, he's asking God to cover sin with mercy. David's asking God to be who he said he is, that is merciful and gracious. God's mercy is new to you this morning. His mercy is new to you in Jesus. You see, this, this book requires perfect obedience to be holy, to be right with God. And Jesus lived perfectly in your place. This book says that, that for those of us who sin, which, by the way, is all of us, that it requires a just payment, and that just payment is death. And this book tells us that Jesus took that death in your place. This book tells us that Jesus didn't stay dead, but then three days later came back to life, proving that he is king over all, that he is God's son, and that those who follow Jesus and trust in his death, burial, resurrection, that, that all those will be with God forever and with eternal life. And so this morning, you can be declared innocent by God. Not because you are innocent, but because Jesus took your place. And so God can look on you with mercy and God can declare you innocent if you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus alone. This is the, the cry of God's people. They cry out, Lord, please forgive us. God's people confess their sin. Next, God's people pray for protection from sin. Look at verse 13. David prays, keep back your servant. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. There's no arrogance here. David is saying something like, Lord, I realize, I realize that, that I can presume on your grace. I can sin in ways that are just outright wicked and arrogant and flagrant. Lord, keep me back from that. I, I'm not going to stay back from that by myself. I, I don't have the power to do that. Maybe you've heard the expression, but for the grace of God, there go I. So Lord, David prays, Lord, keep me back from, from sins. Every time we sin, the, the power of sin grows a little stronger. Right? So when we choose to give in to temptation, we're not simply choosing to sin in that moment, but we're actually making it harder to say no the next time we're tempted. And so David prays, don't let sin have dominion over me. Don't let sin have control, power over me. Lord, keep me away from sin. Do you pray this? 
Jesus asked us to pray this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then the last way that God's people respond here in this psalm is God's people ask God to purify their words and their thoughts. You probably have Psalm 14 memorized. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God is the rock. He's the stable standard of righteousness, and he is the redeemer. He's the one who rescues sinners. And so as those who've been redeemed, our desire is not only, Lord, keep us from evil, but our desire is, Lord, may, may the things we say, whether verbally or, or written, and, and the things that we think, may those things actually please you. May they be acceptable in your sight. I'm going to ask us to, to pray this out loud together right now. Let's pray together, verse 14, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's continue in prayer. I'll lead us. Father, we thank you for your creation. We thank you for your word. Father, your word is truly living light upon our darkened eyes. Your commandment is pure. It enlightens the eyes. Your word guards us through temptations. So, Father, we pray that you would keep us back from presumptuous sins. Your word makes the simple wise. Lord, your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Father, your word is food for famished ones. Father, your word is sweeter than honey, sweeter than honeycomb. Father, your word gives riches for the needy soul. Your word is more to be desired even than, than much fine gold. So, Father, would you, would you speak to us through your word? Thank you for doing that this morning, and I pray that you would do that in our lives, in our homes, tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and throughout this week. Father, may we be a church of people who take in your word daily. Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we pray for those who are here who have not been declared innocent. They have not received your mercy through Christ. We pray that you would save them. Lord, we pray that they would even talk to, to others around them, talk to maybe some leaders here this morning, and they would communicate their desire to receive your mercy through Jesus. Father, declare them innocent as they turn and trust in Jesus. We pray all this for your glory and because of Jesus. Amen.